You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Um, you know, we're, we're coming at 20 years since September 11th first happened. And some of you know my story, and um, that was uh, important in my story. Um, <clears throat> I, um, I was working in the corporate world. I left uh, that job to go finish my MBA and was a Christian. I was ministering to people at IBM where I was working, and then I left to go full-time. I had just gotten married. We didn't have kids yet, but, um, and I would go interview for jobs. So after September 11th happened, when I wasn't working, because um, I was, I was uh, in school, um, I would go interview for jobs that I was overqualified for, that I had a connection, that I had an inside track, and I can do my resume like this, and I'm not even getting calls back. And over time, you can just kind of start, I don't think I went through depression per se, but I, I pretty much just shut down. Nick, he'd come home from work and go, what'd you do today? I go, watch TV today. Like, that's the best use of your time. I was like, that's all, I, that's all I had today. It's all the energy that I had. And um, it happened periodic, it happened quite a bit, actually. And, um, and uh, as a result of that, um, like, when you, like with my story, um, I, I remember sitting there and thinking, why is this happening to me? It doesn't make sense. Um, I, I've tried to be, I've tried to live righteously before God. I've been ministering to people. I've been doing, I thought all the right stuff that a little Christian guy is supposed to do. And, and why, why does it feel like I just can't get a job? I can't provide for my family. I can't, I can't, I can't. And it was just this time of just mystery. And my guess is I'm not the only one that's walked through a time of mystery that's here today. You've had job interviews, you're praying like crazy, you think you're doing all the right things and you're, just, you're not getting it and you're just watching your savings just getting depleted. Or I know a guy who uh, literally uh, had a runaway bride. He, um, he, uh, he and his, his girlfriend, fiance, they said, we're gonna do this right, we're gonna do this God's way. Everybody in his church community group at the time said, eh, and didn't. They got married, they lived happily ever after, I guess. This guy, who had been trying to do it the right way, do it God's way, got up there, bum, 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 or whatever song, the doors fling open. She looks at him and goes, like that, and takes off. <laughs> and so he's standing there and like, not really sure what to do now. No one knows what to do. It's about a time of mystery. I mean, it might be mystery where you go, I just don't know what to do, or I don't understand why this wonderful person over here, why all these bad things are happening, and this jerk over here has, uh, has won the lottery again or something. It could be just confusion. It could be great pain that people are walking through. And what we're going to see today is how in that mystery that we're in, how can we actually move forward in it? And we're going to see it through two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, now, <clears throat> the focus of the story today is Zechariah and Elizabeth, who I'm just going to cut to the chase. They have a son whose name is John. Now, there's a bunch of Johns. This is John the Baptizer or John the Baptist that they're talking about. So this is um, where we'll see an angel from God tell Zechariah and Elizabeth they are going to have John the Baptist, who is the, um, I call him the announcer of Jesus. He's the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one, and it says in Isaiah 40, it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
And then when um, John the Baptist grows up and he's on the scene, he says, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah has said. So he's saying, I am the one, the forerunner to Jesus, the forerunner to the Messiah. So that's the story. Now, last week, we did verses one through four, and what we saw was why Luke wrote this gospel, this Greek doctor named Luke. Why did he write this gospel to this man named Theophilus? And he said, so that you might have certainty. If you missed it last week, um, it's, uh, the word is asphaltos, which is where we get the word asphalt. And the idea is he's writing this to him so that he can stand firm in his faith and have certainty and assurance in the things that he believes. And he does more of that in verse five because he's gonna say something that's unnecessary. It says in verse five, it says, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. He's giving these, um, they call them chronological ciphers. He's giving these data points of, in the days of Herod, that's the when, um, the king of Judea, that's the where. He's giving more detail than he really even needs to. What he's trying to do is say, this isn't some myth that I'm writing about. This Jesus isn't like some of the other fanciful stories that you've heard. This is a true story that's set in history. This is the, the police officer that loves it when someone gives way more information than they even asked for because now they were wanting like three things and now they've got a hundred. They can go through and start testing all hundred things now to see if this guy's telling the truth or not. And what's he doing? Uh, Luke is giving this and saying, the days of Herod, king of Judea, throughout the gospel, he's just gonna start saying, here's the timeline, here's what's happening. Here's another random fact of history of what was going on. All to give certainty. It's he's saying, test it. This is true, is what he's saying. And so that's why he says, <clears throat> the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Now, this is also, I have to say, masterful storytelling that he's about to do. And I don't want you to miss it. So hang with me for a sec here. Keep in mind, what they have is they have this Old Testament looking for the Messiah. Persia is in power here. Then you've got this 400 years between the end of the Old Testament. In fact, it ends, um, it ends with Malachi, and it's talking about that, um, uh, that he will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the fathers to their children. They're saying, we're longing for something else that is going to happen. And so this Old Testament ends with people just longing for the Messiah to come, and then they're there for 400 years. This is the world that they're living in when we open up the New Testament. Also, you've got the Persians, and then they were gone, and then the Greeks, and then they're gone, and then you've got the Romans. And so you've got the poor Israelites being just tossed about like a rag doll, like a pinata or something, with all these different empires rising and falling, and they'd see one fall and think, is this it? Is the Messiah coming? No. And here they are waiting and waiting and waiting. And so they are in Judea. Let me show you a map of Judea. I've told you it's hard to get Israel because it's so uppy-downy and this other thing goes this way. But you can see the green there is the largest. This is Herod the Great. This is the largest his kingdom grew to be. Now, what do you notice about that? It's got Jerusalem in there. It's got some other places in there. But really, this is, this is where the Jews lived, so in 40 BC, what happened is Herod the Great went to Rome and said, I would like to be the king over Judea, please. And they said, that sounds fine, but there's some, uh, some Parthians, some revolts going on, and you need to take Jerusalem. And if you do that, then you will be the king of Judea. And he said, great. And he did it. He quelled some uprisings. He did a lot. Herod the Great did. And, um, and the, finally, Jerusalem, he, he overtook Jerusalem. And so in 37 AD, 
Rome officially declared Herod the Great with the most common title used for him, King of the Jews. Now you're starting to see the story. Theophilus knows where this is going. He says, I'm reminding you of some things and I'm gonna bolster the thing, give you certainty of the things you already know. We know too that the king of the Jews, the real king of the Jews is coming on the scene in Jesus. So Herod, Herod was uh, <laughs> not a good guy. He, he was very politically savvy. They, the kingdom expanded under uh, the next about 15 years or so under this Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And then he was a builder. If you've been to, to uh, the Holy Land, you've seen there's a port at Caesarea. He would name everything Caesarea. Most of those cities are named after him, or he named them because he was kissing up to Caesar. And so oh, name a city after you. And so he just keeps doing that. So he's, he's trying to get in good with Rome. He's trying to lead the Jewish people. People, but at the same time, he's not Jewish, so it makes it incredibly difficult. If you've been to the Holy Land, you might have been to Masada, this huge fortress. He has this other huge uh, fortress called the Herodium with this huge swimming pool in it I'll tell you about in just a minute. And then the other thing he did is he's renovating the temple in Jerusalem. Now, why would somebody who's not Jewish renovate the temple in Jerusalem? He wants their electoral votes. That's what he's doing. This is politics. In fact, it took so long, it took over 80 years to build, let that sink in, over 80 years to build this thing. And um, one scholar that I read um, said that part of the reasoning for it, that why they dragged their heels was so they could constantly tell the Jews if they didn't like them. they go, look, we're building this temple for you. Do you want us to stop? All politics. They're building uh, this temple. Now, um, the other thing he did is... Um, uh, he, I told you he had, the, he had the swimming pool. There were problems in the land. This is about 13 BC for the next 10 years. Horrible problems in his house, horrible problems in the land, misunderstandings with Rome. And so what he started doing is if people disagreed with him, he went from this politically savvy guy to truly just start killing people that disagreed with him. And people started catching on to it and going, wow, people go meet with you and all of a sudden they end up you know, no longer living. And so what he would do is he got word of it. And so that Herodium thing he built with a big swimming pool, he would invite people over to swim. And apparently there were a lot of bad swimmers that came over to swim in his pool because he would just have people drown them and then they would drown and he would put out, this guy's a terrible swimmer, and try to shame them. That's what this guy is. In fact, he, um, he, with the, since he was over the Jews, he said, I'm not going to eat pork. Okay? Um, and so um, Josephus, a historian, once said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I did these in the wrong order. Uh, uh, Josephus said it like this. He said, Herod, listen to this, transmitted to eternity many of his family and friends. He killed at least three of his own sons. We know he drowned his brother-in-law, killed one of his wives, and then he refused to eat pigs because he was, <coughs> excuse me, he was um, uh, overseeing the Jews, and so they knew that wouldn't go well. I guess murder was fine. I don't know how he justified that. But he wouldn't eat, um, he wouldn't eat pork. And so um, Caesar Augustus once said this about the ruthlessness of King Herod the Great. I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. <laughs> he won't eat a pig, but he would kill his own son. So this ruthless killer. And, and besides the fact that he'd been in power for quite some time, and Rome actually went, but you're keeping things in check, so what do we care? So he's like in good with Rome. He's building this temple for the Jews. No doubt some of them have started to go, well, what, what do we do in relationship to him? And then we, they start to see people dying. So maybe they even shut their mouths even more. This is the world they're living in, but it's even worse. You know, the um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs in the Old Testament, 
should have actually been Abraham, Isaac, Esau, because Esau was the firstborn, but then when, they, when he went to pass the blessing on, on them, um, mama got involved and got some trickery involved, and so they passed it on to Jacob. And so we say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And the Israelites come from Jacob. Jacob's brother is Esau. And there's a group called the Edomites that come from Esau. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Israelites, Edomites. Historically, if you look at the Israelites and the Edomites, Christ is gonna come from this line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Israelites and Edomites constantly at war with each other. Good guys, bad guys. That's how they saw each other. That is the enemy. And the other thing we know about Herod is actually his father Antipater, we see very clearly he was an Edomite. So now think about this. Now you're in this place waiting and waiting and waiting. You see Persia, you see Greek, you see Rome. You've got this guy who's been declared king of the Jews who's killing people that disagree with him. He's an Edomite that is ruling over the Israelites and they are there going, God, have you forgotten about us? God's going to use these two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, two people that otherwise you would have no idea who they are, to have a child that will be the forerunner of the Messiah. They were both um, from a priestly line. It says, um, it says she was a daughter of Aaron. That's the priests in the Old Testament. Um, Zechariah, it says, was the division of Abijah, meaning um, just quickly in the Old Testament, they took the priests, divided them into 24 different divisions. Abijah was the eighth division, and that's his lineage. So you've got two people with great heritage, but there's more. Look at verse six. It says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. It literally says they were both righteous in the opinion of God. God looked and saw that they were righteous. He declared them righteous. Then it talks about walking righteously. And the idea here is you're right before God and everybody around you would go, oh yeah, Those are good. That's not some phony righteousness. We are walking with them and watching their lives. These are good, if I can use that term, people. They are righteous before God. So the next verse, I think, should say this. So they all lived happily ever after and nothing ever went wrong ever. Don't you sort of think that? They were really, really great. They were in a time where things were awful. And here they are waiting patiently, patiently. They have the perfect lineage. They are righteous before God and man. And what happens? But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Let me try and say this compassionately and also clearly what this means for a woman to not be able to have a child in that culture. Um, I'm from the South, and I think the pressure may be a little bit more there, where if you were to ask me about the timing of why I married my bride 22 years ago, um, it was, we knew we were going to get married, and then uh, we kind of went, it looks like everybody's getting married now. And like all our friends went from like boyfriend, girlfriend, or dating to fiance to marriage. And then what happened was we would start like, oh, we'll go hang out. And they're talking about like marriage things and we're talking about like dating things. And over time you just kind of go like, let's let's just do that. Isn't that romantic? I'm really romantic at heart. But it was, but there's something where you just go, well, I'm ready. I don't have a good reason to not, so let's just do that and I'll make life better. And so so we we did and we got married and we've never looked back. I'm I'm thrilled. Um, But... Here, we, we have a little bit of this, a sense of we do feel pressure from the outside world. When you get your kid a, um, a, a, a cell phone at a certain age, you kind of feel pressure like, gosh, everybody else 
has one. Everybody else is married. What you can be is you can be um, really an accidental outcast, I call it, where you've got married people and you've got people that aren't married yet and then they get married and it's, you're more than welcome to hang out. We can all hang out. But the reality is these conversations are going to look different from these conversations. And so you can start to drift apart. That's a very individualistic Western culture. In this Eastern culture, this communal culture, you would have dads that would go and say, this is my son, this is your daughter, I think that's a good match. They would put them together, they would get the timing of it, they would keep the community intact, and they would put people together. And then at some point, they would, very soon, they would look and go, let's start, look, women should start having babies now, let's start having kids. And so they would start having kids. And it was this tight-knit community um, where uh, the, the, the shame you might feel was great if you weren't able to keep up. Because what's happening now is as they are growing up and as they are growing older, she doesn't have friends. I mean, she probably does somewhere, but not in the same way that some of the other women do or some of the other people do. This is difficult. In fact, in that culture, there was this um, shame involved with it as well. They thought maybe God's punishing you kind of thing. Um, And Zechariah could have left her because she was not able to give him a child to carry on his family name. That's the culture. They are accidental outcasts where now everybody you're with is talking about something that will never be the case with you because it says they're past the age that they were gonna have kids. This is incredibly difficult and they were righteous nonetheless in the worst of circumstances. When bad things happen, isn't it easy to just kind of, I'll put my faith on pause for a minute. I'll make the easy decision instead of the right decision maybe for a little bit. Or really the thing that I see, and I've felt this, I'm gonna tell you an embarrassing story. Um, I felt this, which is if I live right, if I live righteously, then there should be a little protection around me. Like God should protect me extra rather than this person who's not doing the same thing and putting in the same effort that I am. And sometimes we think that our righteousness, our righteous deeds gets us, um, we, we are now owed this hedge of protection around us. I told you my story earlier. I'm really embarrassed to share this, but I'm going to. I was sharing with a pastor friend of mine when I was walking through it and going, I keep getting rejected. I just, I can't, I, I don't know what to do. And he asked me how I felt. And I was like, I don't know, use different words. I did not say what I feel. And he's like, he pulled stuff out of me. And he just said, just start talking. And I just started talking. I don't remember everything I said, but I'm, um, I do remember one thing that I said. I don't have a job. I was, when I was in the business world, I was ministering to people. I'm faithful to my wife. I'm God, and I was basically saying, I'm pretty good. And so I don't understand why God isn't now doing good things for me. And the words that came out of my mouth were, I feel owed, O-W-E-D. I feel like God kind of owes me because I've been working so hard for him. Can I just say, if I compare my righteousness to the righteousness of God, I'm good. it is a good thing, and I am glad that I don't get what my deeds merit. This is not work hard, be good, and then there's this hedge of protection around you. When we're walking through the mystery. Now, people generally don't say it, except I did. People generally don't say it like that, but we do think this way. They're so good and a bad thing happened. I don't understand that. It's like they should have some extra protection of some kind. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are going, be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. And look at verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, that's the division of Abijah, uh, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And look what the people did. The whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
So at this time, there's probably about 20,000 priests, something like that. Each of the 24 divisions probably has close to 1,000 priests in it. Way too many. Because what they would do is twice a year for one week, they would cast lots, kind of like rolling dice, to discern the will of God in the Old Testament. And they would take these priests and they would serve for a week. Now, most priests didn't ever get to serve. If you do get to serve, then you're checked off the list and you can't win the next time. And so this is really once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He's serving as priest because his division was chosen. He was chosen by Lot to go in and to burn incense. They would go in the temple twice a day and they would offer sacrifices. Um, They were stinky and gross, if you can imagine. This is slaughtered animals that they're offering to God. And in the Bible, incense carries the idea of prayer. And so they would have this animal, this sacrifice, and other, there were other pieces that were sacrificed as well. And then they had the altar of incense. Don't picture the little stick of incense with like a woo, like little thing going up, okay? This is like a huge thing filled, and you see smoke, the incense rising up. And what it is, is we're sacrificing something. It's a pungent smell. And so we send this sweet aroma of prayer. It's enveloped in that up to you, God. And Zechariah is the one that gets to go in and be a part of this. Um, and then everybody else, this is at 3 p.m. he's going in. Everybody else is outside. They're outside waiting because he would go in, he would do his thing, he would, they knew the timing, he would walk out, and then he would offer the people a benediction. And then they would leave. What they're doing is, um, is even though Zechariah is doing something, it is, they know that this is a community thing that is happening. An example of this would be when we pray in public. Sometimes we pray in public and we go, oh, Jim's praying, I'll wait till he gets to that word that translated means you can open your eyes now. Amen, there it is, and then you open up your eyes. But it's like Jim's sort of doing this or Paul's doing this or whatever. We actually did this first hour. Um, Elaine Swope, if you know Elaine, got commissioned, oh, there we go, to lead our, um, our Stephen's ministry here. That's Mike and Diane Whitman on, on your right. Uh, they led the Stephen's ministry before. And now they're, um, they're handing it over to Elaine. They're wonderful human beings. They, um, and we prayed over Elaine. Pastor Paul is voicing it on behalf of the congregation. Um, I'm up there. The Whitmans are up there. We're putting hands on her. But the idea is, and sometimes we do lose this, let's admit, when there's something else going on, someone else is doing it, you might sit out there and sort of think your background. That's not what the Bible says. I might be praying, Pastor Paul might be praying, like this instance as we're commissioning Elaine, but really, this is God's people uniting our hearts together. Just one person happens to be speaking it. That's what's happening here. Zechariah is going in, but they have a very vested interest. It's like they're in there with him almost. That's how they would have seen this. And in verse 11, this was not a normal day. These appeared to him, there appeared to him <coughs> an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, which means the Lord is gracious. Now, if you're Zechariah, and you have been praying, and we, I won't recap the whole thing, but you're thinking about how painful this has been, and you've been praying and praying and praying and praying, for a kid. And then all of a sudden, you go in, oh, the lot fell to me. I'm going in to do my priestly duty. And my goodness, there's an angel of the Lord standing there, and he says, your prayer is answered, and you're going to have a child. If I'm Zechariah, I feel like I would go, ah, thank you so much. I'm going to take off and tell Elizabeth. 
I'm gonna go scream it from the rooftops. Thank you, that's been the desire of my heart, that's been my prayer, and you have done it, thank you. And watch what happens, because the prayer that he has, Gabriel's about to say, the angel's gonna say, oh, it's so much more than you even know. Look at this. He says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He says, you, singular, you, uh, Zechariah, are going to be filled with joy and gladness. But then he starts to build, and he says, many others are as well. And this isn't just like, you know, grandma, grandpa are going to come by and get their phones and take 30,000 pictures from the exact same angle of the child, and so they can show, here's everything my child's done ever on my phone. That's not what he's talking about. Yeah, they will. I mean, extended family is going to be really excited about it. People in their community will be excited about it. But he says, this is something unique from the Lord. This is bigger. In fact, when he says, God has named your child John, the act of naming something was an act of saying, um, I'm taking responsibility for this. Who named him John? God. God is saying, I'm taking special interest and care over this child. And then, (coughs) excuse me. Sorry. And then you see this time where there's been no prophets. You have this end of the Old Testament in Malachi that says he's going to strike the land with a curse. He's got to turn the hearts of the fathers of children, children to fathers. Listen to how Gabriel continues. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What he's saying is the silence that you've been in is ending. And Messiah's coming. And you're about to have a little boy that is going to be the announcer, the forerunner of Jesus. They're asking for a baby, and, they give, and God gives so much more. Here's one of the things that I, I was, I've been reflecting on um, here. A lot of the ways we pray are pretty simplistic, sometimes pretty reactive, I would like a kid. God, I'd like a kid. I'd like to be married. God, I would like to be, please help me, help me get married. Um, somebody is sick, let's pray for healing. And sometimes we keep it at a pretty, a pretty surface level. I mean, he's going, I want a kid, and that's a big, noble thing. And he goes, oh, there's something so much bigger. And I start wondering, are we praying too simply? Should we be praying bigger than this? Is our God big enough that we should be lifting big prayers to him? Like here, here's some things that came to mind for me. Um, instead of saying just, if, you have, if, if you're sick, to say, God, heal me, which please do pray that, God, heal me. Think about if you really put time into going, I wonder if God could be doing something bigger through this. God, I pray you heal me. I pray that sister-in-law that's had such a hard heart towards you would watch how I walk with you through the midst of tragedy and she would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's a prayer. Or uh, if you're out of a job, God, give me a, a keen memory of this that I might have a beautiful testimony to share of your goodness someday. And give me a job. We ask for that stuff too. Or the guy that I met who's um, the runaway bride, instead of just going, that didn't work, you, get, you got another, 
you know, like I'd like to get married, can you send another woman my way? Instead of having it be like that, um, think about this. Think if someone's praying and going, this was a big event, and when big things like this happen, people go one of two ways, God. They either become better or they become bitter. Help me become better and not bitter. But how do we get to that level of prayer? We can't just go, someone's sick, let's pray for healing, and then we're done. To really stop and think, is God doing something bigger here? And let's pray for that and for that end. There was a, there was a, um, <coughs> excuse me, a young man actually in, um, in Kentucky, I think it was, that um, this put me to shame. His, um, his brother was killed by another man and, his, and um, the guy got convicted and he was getting the death penalty. I watched the, um, an interview. This woman was interviewing the, the living brother and she said, how have you been? What's going on? That kind of thing. And and he said, um, you know, it's been hard. I need, it's diff- you know, he was difficult. The guy going to prison and getting justice doesn't do exactly what I thought it would, that kind of thing. And, um, and so then, she, and he said, I've been praying a lot. And on a local news affiliate, she asked, how have you been praying? What have you been praying for? And he said, I've been praying for peace. I've been praying for comfort. I've been praying... I can move past this for my family and all that kind of stuff. And then he kept talking. And one of the things he said that struck me is he said, I am praying for, I don't know the guy's name, I'm sorry, the man that murdered my brother, that he might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ before he's executed. Pray big. Zechariah said to the angel, he needs a sign. How shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife, this is very tactful, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Good save, buddy. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news, the euangelion, where we get the word evangelize, it's the gospel. He says, this is it, the silence is over, Messiah is coming. This is going to be a showdown between one king of the Jews, King Herod, who, um, by the way, his kingdom, when he dies, his kingdom just gets fractured into four different parts, and the real king of the Jews, whose kingdom will never end. He says, this is the good news, Zechariah, be strong, be encouraged, and behold, you will be silent. He asked for a sign. He goes, I got a sign for you. You're not going to be able to talk. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Remember the people outside? The people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering his delay in the temple. It's taken so long. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, but remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived for five months. She kept herself hidden, probably because she was still feeling shame of her age and not being able to be um, pregnant. And then she started showing, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. One of the things you can do when you're studying stories, narrative in the Bible, is to say, let me be a person in the story or... If I could take some of the people in the story and if I could just time machine them here and I could ask them some questions, how would they answer them? If Zechariah and Elizabeth could be here today and we said, give us some principles, from, give, us, give us some lessons that you've learned that we can learn. Three come to mind for me. I think the first thing might be be righteous in reverence, not for reward. A lot of times we do because we think, well, it's gonna come back to me. 
if I do it. If I am living righteously for something to come back to me, that is no longer righteous living, that's selfish living. I want something out of it. I, I wonder, like, if they were here, can you imagine asking them and going, well, that kind of stinks. If, we're, if, if our works don't earn us God's, like, protection and give us all the things that we want, then why would we even do it? I wonder what Zechariah and Elizabeth would say, but I have a, I have a thought. They might say, because he's God. We knew that about Yahweh, about God in the Old Testament. You know all that, and then you've got this cross thing that happened. You've got the Messiah that did come, that died on the cross. You've got the historicity of this. You had people watch this. People knew that this happened, that the God-man Jesus bled and died for you. What were you asking about? What's in it for you? Follow him because he is God. Number two, pray big. Put time into it. Instead of just the quick reaction of whatever oh, the immediate need would be this, what's something else? What would God be doing? If you're a verbal processor, get with someone and talk about it, or maybe it's jot it down or go by yourself and just think and give yourself space to think, is there something bigger God might be doing that I should be praying for? And lastly, <clears throat> I think they might say, just because it doesn't feel like he's working doesn't mean he isn't. Just because it may not feel, I know, in, in our world today, whatever you feel is just the epitome, right? Uh, it's, it's the top, it's the peak, it's the pinnacle. If you feel that way, somehow that makes it true. Sometimes you might not feel like God's, I, I don't know how to sense this, see this. That doesn't mean he's not working. And if you think about Zechariah, I mean, you think about, I won't recap, but you go to the Old Testament, this fake king of the Jews, tyrant Edomite is reigning over the Jews. It would be easy to go, God, are you still, you still remember us? In fact, in the Old Testament, one of the most common words is the Hebrew word zakar, which means remember. He uses it several times. And listen to how it's used. It's used when there's a whole bunch of bad stuff going on and God breaks through that and sees an individual or two. It says Noah in the world that is unrighteous. It said God looked and God remembered Noah. God zakar Noah. After Sodom and Gomorrah, you have Abram and Lot and all this debauchery. And here's these two faithful men. And it says, God remembered Abram and Lot. God, Zakar, Abram, and Lot. When the Israelites were groaning in slavery, God, it says, remembered them under the oppressive Egyptians. When they're wandering in the desert, God says, I remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the story of Samson, the uh, big guy, that, um, the, the mighty warrior that lost his strength. The Philistines capture him. They take his eyes, and he's there as a prisoner. They're mocking him in this celebration. He's completely powerless, and he says, God, give me strength one more time that he can have strength to push the pillars and crush the Philistines. And in the midst of that, even his unfaithfulness, it says, God remembered Samson. Psalms over and over. My enemies are surrounding me, and then God remembers me. Isaiah tells the Israelites, they're going to go in captivity, and while you're there, God is going to remember you. No matter how distant God seems, he's not. No matter how forgettable you might think you are, you're not. And perhaps the best person to give us that message is a guy whose name is God remembers, Zechariah, Zechariah. After 400 years of lying in wait and agony, waiting for the Messiah to come, God remembered and sent him.
live righteously, pray big, and never forget that God never forgets.